Welcome to PeerPoint Perspectives, the securities finance podcast delivering commentary from the best, brightest and most innovative people in the world of securities lending, repo, collateral management and related areas. PeerPoint Perspectives is brought to you by the consulting team at PeerPoint Financial. So now over to your hosts. Hello and welcome to episode nine of PeerPoint Perspectives. I'm your host, Roy Zimmerhansel, and practice lead at PeerPoint. In this podcast, I'm going to look at revenues for the first half of the year using information from a recent IHS market webinar to talk a little bit about the revenues, how I see them, recent news, and give my thoughts on the second half of the year. Now, because it's only me, this will be a shorter episode than other podcasts, so you can relax. I won't drag you on for 45 minutes or an hour. I have to admit, some of the recent podcasts have gone much longer than I had ever expected them to. But the reality is when we sat down to figure out what we could cut, I thought that the guests had so much interesting material that we didn't want to cut anything. Anyway, I hope that the timeline that we always include in the show notes help those with limited time to target topics that they're most interested in. Now, at this stage of most podcasts, I've done an introduction of the people, so I'll spare you that. And I also usually ask guests to do a short explanation as to why people should listen to the specific episode that they're on. So here goes. Although the past is not a predictor of the future, I still think it's really important for people to understand where their securities lending revenues have come from, what the revenue drivers are, the trends that influence the business, and the outlook for the coming months, and that's what I'll be covering today. So let me start with the numbers. Again, all of this information is based on data provided by IHS Market in their half-year review. So uh, if you want more information on it, there's quite a lot of detailed information in terms of asset classes and trends, experiences, and commentary. Uh, I recommend you contact the people at Market. Now, revenues themselves were, according to their data, for the first half of the year, they were $4.78 billion, and that's about 4.8% down from the same period in 2019. And that's the same figure roughly as the first half of 2017. So 2020 first half and 2017 first half are both pretty similar. The thing is, those are the two worst first halves since 2010. So you might think that I'm nuts for saying this, but look, I think that's a better result than I expected. So why is it better? Uh, Let me give you four reasons. First of all, short-selling bans in South Korea, France, and Italy, amongst other markets, meant that the revenues from these markets could only go down during the bans. And since each of these are a significant revenue contributor or generator, taking these new loans out of the equation, I think, is a really big deal. Now, the second point is that the second quarter usually benefits from a revenue uplift from dividend arbitrage transactions or if you prefer, yield enhancement trades. Yes, I've said that out loud despite the European Banking Association paper on dividend arbitrage in Europe. 
If you want to learn more about the EBA paper and the dividend arbitrage issue, I suggest you listen to last week's podcast with the excellent Ali Kazimi from Hansuki Consulting or read our blog post from May 19th. Anyway, in the IHS market webcast that accompanied the results uh, and the release of those figures, I really loved how Sam Pearson, the host of the webcast, said in response to Paul's question on European activity, that in order to have yield enhancement trades, you had to have some yield to enhance. And I thought that was perfect. Due to the impact of coronavirus, 40% of dividends in the first half were delayed, with a further 9% expected to be delayed, according to Sam's colleagues. So that too is a big deal. So you have short selling bans, you now have dividend uh, arbitrage or yield enhancement trades or dividends themselves being delayed. So that's the second point. The third point is that central bank support for corporate bonds in many markets saved those bonds from having active shorts, which might have been expected given the corporate carnage resulting from recessions already underway or likely to be announced in coming months. Some of that activity shifted into ETFs, which had a positive year-over-year increase, but the activity was also um, affected with inflows into credit ETFs. So while this isn't as big a deal as the first two items, uh, I think it's also an important contributor to what I expected to be a real negative return for um, uh, or negative impact on returns which turned out a little bit uh, more positive than, than I expected. So central banks going in, putting support into the credit mark meant that uh, they were less susceptible to uh, price drops. Uh, central banks, of course, also uh, impacted um, reinvestment rates by dropping rates. And so central banks themselves were important contributors to uh, what should have been an even more negative market. Now, finally, this this is all a little bit obvious, but it goes without saying that since securities lending fees are based on asset values themselves, if those asset values drop and everything else stays the same, the fees stay the same and the loans outstanding stay the same, but the asset value drops, well, you're going to make less money. And since that for most of the period from March until mid-May, The market drops were pretty significant um, compared to the start of the year or the first couple of months of the year. So I thought just that alone would have a big impact on markets. So those are the four things. Now, if those are the things that went wrong, what are the things that went right? Well, first of all, North American equity revenues were up despite lower total balances on loan. Um, specials were up over the past three years in similar, uh, in similar periods. And so smaller balances with higher fees ended up resulting in overall better returns. And specials really led the way. Now, not just with North America, but if I could look at the highest performing stocks that uh, uh, that uh, IHS market uh, commented on or, or provided data on. Uh, although I'm not going to go into all 20 stocks, let me just give you uh, a summary of three things. First of all, 
match group meant that lending revenues and relationships were hot. Cannabis stocks kept lending returns high. And Wirecard brought new meaning to the word use of the word cashless. Okay, so that's my attempt at humor. Uh, if that isn't immediately funny to you, I suggest you dig deep and do your research. And I, I'm sure in a few hours or days, you'll, you'll be laughing your head off. So enough of that. We'll get back to the podcast. So look, Sam showed us, I was one point was North America and some of the specials contributed quite a lot of revenue. Then Sam showed us data indicating that cash reinvestment uh, returns contributed to higher basis point return than it has done for the past five years. In fact, double or more than the levels in the past five years. So that had a massive impact for cash reinvestment, uh, collateralized uh, loans. Secondly, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, traders shifted into shorting ETFs and returns from that group were up. And then finally, government bond lending revenues were up partly from reinvestment returns, partly from the coronavirus market impact, and partly the ongoing need for HQLA uh, assets by investment banks. So given that for most of the first half, asset values were down significantly, the central bank intervention on rates and asset purchases and short-selling bans in a significant number of markets all were really important forces that would have and should have and did conspire to drive returns down. I have to say a, a drop of 5% or less than 5% is a pretty reasonable set of results. So look, if that's the first half, where do we go from here? Well, in any given period, it's pretty difficult to predict uh, lending revenues because lending securities lending activity always follows on from market trading activity. So you have to start with predicting where the market's going to go. And then you can map lending revenues against that. And I have to tell you, if I could predict market moves, I'd probably be doing this podcast from Bali, not Surbiton. Now, just to show how strange life is, there is a podcaster based in Bali who used to be in securities finance. So see what I mean about being hard to predict the future? I'm pretty certain that when she started her a career in tri-party, she didn't expect to be a, uh, a podcaster in Bali, or maybe she did. And it was that kind of a dream that meant that she was propelled towards achieving that. Who knows? So I expected that the, that given the um, slashed market prices for many stocks, that there wouldn't be many opportunities for new short sales. But, you know, when the short selling bans came off in some of the European markets, Traders moved it back in quickly and, you know, increased balances and, and, and returns from that. And then on another recent podcast, James Clooney from Jupiter, who was talking to us about short selling, he set me right saying that now, despite what you would expect with market drops, the reality is there were plenty of opportunities ahead of us. And I guess if you think about it, we still need to see what the impact of coronavirus is on uh, on company prices and how the markets react to that. And given that the market projects sort of forward and it's a forward-looking indicator, 
you know, it's always adjusting itself because uh, you never know whether the forward prediction was actually right until you get there. So James thinks that there's opportunities, and I've heard this sentiment echoed by a number of other fund managers, so I'm pretty sure that they're better informed than me, and we can look forward to more shorting activity going forward. But I have to say, the news for hedge funds, on the face of it, appears pretty dismal. You know, there was news last week that Lansdowne Partners was shutting its main hedge fund in a shift away from short selling. Now, they were one of the big winners in the past from short-selling activity, so it was quite a shock to the market. Um, and I guess the uh, the rumor, the story behind it was that they had allegedly suffered some of their worst ever losses from their short positions. And there was also news uh, from Sloan Robinson that they were shutting after 25 years in the business. And then the stat was released that at the end of Q1, that was the seventh consecutive quarter where the number of hedge fund liquidations exceeded new market startups for the seventh consecutive quarter. So not really anything to look forward to on that. But look, maybe it's the contrary in me, but I see all of that as positives. Okay, I'm weird. The three things are here. Look. Number one, to me, fewer funds means less crowding in some of the strategies and trades, which means performance may improve amongst the remaining competitors. So when you get better performance, money tends to follow it. Now, uh, with, uh, with firms like Lansdowne getting out of uh, shorting, uh, it reminds me that I've heard in the past that you know, there have been times, I'm pretty certain I can recall instances where other big names have got out of shorting saying, look, I'm closing my books and therefore, uh, you know, I'm not going to have any short positions. Again, it's, it's too risky. The market's too unpredictable. It doesn't matter how much research we do. Uh, if the market doesn't uh, act logically in our view, then, you know, we can lose money. So we don't want to have any part of that. I recall many of those instances where not long after people made those pronouncements, the market turned and short positions actually generated positive returns. So had they just hung on, you know, who knows what would have happened. So maybe big names getting out is a capitulation signal. And in fact, the opportunities will improve. Who knows? Finally, on hedge fund news front, A recent Credit Suisse report said that hedge funds uh, were the asset class with the most investor interest for the second half of 2020. So go figure. Now, in any case, Q3 is usually the lowest for securities lending revenues. And I don't see any reason why that wouldn't happen again this year. But who knows whether there'll be a second wave. Uh, further economic strife, what the impact on the markets would be, and what, if anything, central bankers can do that they haven't done already. They could, for instance, start buying equities directly or through ETFs the way the Bank of Japan has. Oh, my, my, my. Just think of more market distortions from central bank interventions. 
Now, I want to move on to a key point that Paul Wilson made in the Q&A session afterwards. So they were talking about uh, some of the enhancements that they've made to their product offering. And there's one in particular that I want to highlight. He talked about borrowers differentiating between lenders in a way that's more sophisticated than simply collateral preferences, right? Because it's been, you know, it's been pretty straightforward. You know, do you take cash? Do you take equities? Do you take government bonds? Do you take only one of those? Do you take all of those? And uh, the ones, typically the lenders that are the most flexible tend to see the most consistent demand for their assets. So that's been going on for a long time. But he was talking about lender portfolio, portfolio quality, stability, and credit quality, and the impact on risk-weighted asset costs for borrowers. In other words, in his view, borrowers are becoming more discerning. And I couldn't agree more. Again, if you want to uh, read our thoughts on the subject, check out the blog post that we wrote on uh, March 10th or podcast episode number three entitled, What Do Borrowers Want from Lenders? But look, I think that's the future. And I think it's not just on a per transaction basis. I think what we'll actually see is continuing technology development so that you'll see end-to-end piping that brings in a lot of automated decision-making that routes orders from the hedge fund through internalization uh, out to the borrow, to the lender, the beneficial owner that they want to borrow from based on all of the criteria that I, that I said Paul laid out. So watch this space. I think that's inevitable. One final point. So that, that's it for sort of the first half uh, results and outlook. Uh, I want to say that this uh, episode is going to be released on Thursday, July 16th. That's the same day as the closing events in the groundbreaking two-week webinar series put on by ISF and ISLA. So it's been two weeks, uh, multiple webinars, some great panelists and discussion and topics, and I have the good fortune of wrapping up the event by interviewing Andy Dyson, CEO of ISLA. Now, Andy was our first external guest on the podcast in episode four. And although it's obviously still early days in our broadcasting career, that's still our most popular podcast. Now, for those of you that haven't signed up for the uh, webinar, Hopefully you're listening to this podcast as soon as you wake up on Thursday and uh, maybe you can still sign up and hear the final couple of webinars uh, that are scheduled for Thursday the 16th. I'll definitely put a link in the show notes as well, uh, just in case. Like if you can't make it, then why not listen to the podcast with Andy from last month anyway? Uh, He covers a huge range of really topical issues that are driving the agenda at his uh, And I think it's worth a listen. So that's a wrap for this episode. Um, In preparing my notes for this session, uh, I went into it with some some concern, I have to admit. I was going to say that the outlook for the next six months is unpredictable. But the truth is, you can say that for every six-month period that's forward-looking at any really point in time. You know, in January, I might have said that uh, the bull run uh, would have to come to an end someday. And in fact, I was saying that to people. 
but there's no way I could have predicted when that might have been. And I certainly didn't really know anything about coronavirus or whatever I did know. I didn't think that it would become as uh, impactful as it has done. And as I said before, you know, who knows about how the pandemic will continue to spread, whether there'll be second waves for countries coming out of lockdown and what the effect on economies, companies and markets will be. The other momentous event, which uh, will have been running for a few days by the time that this podcast is broadcast, is the start of the Securities Finance Transactions Reporting Regulations. So people that are captured by it will be busily reporting their trades on a daily basis. I've been saying for some time that this regulation is having a bigger impact on the business than any other uh, that I've ever seen. So you may be shocked when I tell you that the subject for next week's podcast has what is, in my opinion, the potential to be an even more impactful uh, uh, change in its shaping of this business. So I hope you'll be able to join us next week. If you haven't subscribed yet and you like this podcast or the previous podcast where other guests tell you what what they're thinking uh, on a more informed basis maybe than me, then please sign up either on our website or at your favorite podcast location. It would also be great if you could tell other people about the podcast, uh, but probably only if they're in the business. Um, you know, my neighbors aren't really all that interested in this, so I suspect yours might not be either. Now, we want to provide you with the topics that you want to hear about. So if you have subjects or guests that you'd like to listen to, send me your suggestions. Our contact details are always in the show notes. And if you want to hear more from us, we're pretty active uh, in uh, social media. So as I said, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends, You can find us at our website on www.peerpoint.info. We're very active on LinkedIn and Facebook as PeerPoint Financial Consulting. And we're on Twitter as PeerPointFC. And again, all of that will be in the description below. I'm Roy Zimmerhansel, and thanks for listening to PeerPoint Perspectives and the Art of Securities Finance.